Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, today we've got our first story from World War I. We're going to talk about Alvin York, commonly known as Sergeant Alvin York. At the time of the action that we're going to dive into, he was a corporal. So I'm going to go back and forth a little bit. You're going to hear Sergeant Alvin York. You're going to hear Corporal York. And you're just going to hear plain old Alvin York. Corporal York was born in Fentress County, Tennessee, and grew up in Fentress County, Tennessee. That's an area of you know, north central Tennessee between Nashville and Knoxville. Before the war, before the United States entry into World War I, he had joined an organization known as the Church of Christ and Christian Union. And in turn, recognizing that he was going to be drafted, or he knew he was going to be drafted, and when his draft notice came, he sent back a letter asking to be a conscientious objector. Now, that has been something throughout American history. We've allowed folks to uh, serve in different capacities. It's not always that they don't serve. It's just that they might be asked to do something different, right? So if you have somebody, especially in a time like World War I, World War II, and prior to that, where you were you were bringing on such a substantial amount of the uh, manpower within the United States, you might not be able to just say, we don't need you, but there's going to be something that person can do. So you'd find folks that were conscientious, conscientious objectors filling all sorts of roles in the military. Usually they would continue to be drafted and they would just be moved to an office or a hospital or whatever it might be. York's request is denied. He goes off to his unit, still holding those beliefs that he, he, you know, it wasn't a stunt. He believed when he left that he was not permitted to kill within his religion. That's, that's the, the stance that he took, that there was no reason ever for anybody to kill another human being. He ended up being, figure out the right way to say this. Convinced makes it sound like somebody sat down and said, you're wrong. Let me change your views. But he engaged in a lot of dialogue with his company commander and some others in the military who themselves were Christian and and really just directed his attention elsewhere, I guess is what I'd say, to where he came around by the time he shipped out to France, um, willing and able to take part in, in combat. So Sergeant York at the time, um, it would have been a private eventually promoted to corporal and then Sergeant makes his way to France at the start of the United States involvement in world war II. The action for which he's going to be awarded the medal of honor is known as the Meuse Argonne offensive. That's a 47 day battle. And in world war one, it's still today so challenging to look at maps and really understand what happens because you essentially have a line running across Europe when you're just looking at the Western front. You have a line running across Europe with the, the United States and Canada and Great Britain and France and the allies on one side and Germany and their allies on the other. But the, it's not a straight line. It meanders back and forth and it doesn't just sit still. There's little pushes here and little retreats there. And there is constant fighting, low level conflict by the nature of World War I every single day. And then there's massive battles that take tens or hundreds of thousands of casualties. It's an incredibly complex war to get your head around. And there are people that spend their entire lives that entire lives studying the war and still are 
and still are challenged to really drill down and give a summary of some of these events. It's, it's really, really hard. But something that's interesting is every single day there are things taking place on an individual level, right? There weren't just major battles that we documented. There's individual acts all day, every day for years. The Meuse-Argonne Offensive would take place in 1918. Remember, the Germans would sign an armistice to cease fighting in November of 1918. American forces didn't land on the continent until the summer of 1918 to really begin fighting. So when we think of the United States' involvement in World War I, we need to remember that the French, especially the French and the Germans and the British and many other countries, had been engaged in, in monumental-scale warfare for four years, the United States, all in, part, takes part for five to six months. So it's a totally different, totally different war for the United States than it is for Great Britain, and of course for France and for Germany. But when the United States lands troops on the continent ready to engage in combat, it's the it's commonly seen as the domino that starts the downfall of the German Empire at that point. These two powers, two, well, not two powers, the, the multiple powers engaged in combat in World War I are commonly referred to as, um, you know, like a bar fight. And people are just swinging wildly in a bar. Think of a bar fight where somebody walks in after an hour of fighting and joins one side over the other. That's the impact the United States had in World War I. These, these two sides, I should say, not two countries, but two sides have been throwing death blows month after month, year after year, their countries were exhausted, their people were exhausted, their, their materials were exhausted. And then in the summer of 1918, the United States shows up with a ton of troops, a ton of equipment, a ton of manpower, a ton of, a ton of facility to create more equipment. It's, it's the start of the downfall, if you will. It kind of, it seals the fate, I guess. In retrospect, we can say it sealed the fate that Germany would be on the losing end of World War I. But something of note that's different in World War I than especially in World War II, it wasn't clear that Germany was going to lose up until, I mean, weeks, days before that armistice was signed. Whereas in World War II, you saw once the Allies really established the beachhead in, in Normandy and in France, and then as they pushed across, you know, certain battles were won in the Pacific – you could start to see, hey, Japan's not coming back from this. And you could start to see, hey, Germany's on the retreat. They're coming, people are coming in from all sides. That wasn't the case in World War I. Up until the last minute, anybody could win this. That's important in this story. Because the German troops involved in Sergeant York's story have been fighting for years. And they don't know if or when there's ever going to be an end. Those German troops by 1918, even if they've only been fighting for a year have seen a year's more combat than America. They've at least experienced what it's like to be to see their friends, their family members go off to war and not come back. Their country's ravaged. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're looking for an end. Across the board on both sides, there were there were troops surrendering, not necessarily in mass, but people looking for an out in the war. It was not uncommon to see fairly sizable groups, especially at this point in the war for the Germans, 
to surrender. Remember, it's a different type of warfare. It's a different enemy. Often a surrender would mean that your war was over and you could go home later. You just were going to spend a little bit of time with the enemy. Surrendering has been painted in a different light in recent conflicts where either the enemy does not take prisoners or prisoners are tortured and killed. Surrendering in World War I was not always the worst option. In fact, there's a lot of circumstances where somebody surrendering saves the lives of many, many soldiers that would have otherwise been lost for a small hill. So this takes us to Sergeant York and his actions on October 8th, 1918. In the middle of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, his unit comes under fire from a handful of German machine gun positions. They're asked, York and a seven, it's a 17-man detachment that is asked to move forward and infiltrate enemy lines and knock out these machine guns so the American units can proceed with the attack. They make their way through the German lines and they come across a headquarters unit. They capture this unit uh, without, it sounds like without a ton of fighting. They're, you know, now intermixed with the German lines. Something we often think about is that there's this very clear cut, like don't cross this road on the other side of the road is the enemy, but this was constantly shifting. So what could have been your bunker today, if you have to retreat in two weeks, you might be attacking that bunker. So it's going to look different. If you're coming at it from one side versus the other, it's it's not always as clear cut as move past your barbed wire and there's the enemy's barbed wire and you got to get through that. The lines were broken and confusing. And anyways, York and his men, at this point, Corporal York, make their way through the line. They capture this German headquarters unit, 30-ish soldiers. Other German units recognize that the Americans are standing there and start to engage them with machine guns. So... Right away, many many of the men, I think it's nine total in the detachment of 17, are either killed or wounded, including all of those that outrank then Corporal York. That puts him in charge. Now in charge, he goes on the, I guess, offensive, um, at least fighting back. I don't know that I would call it the offensive versus uh, just, just deliberately engaging the enemy. Now, York, growing up in rural Tennessee, was an incredible marksman. He's going to be firing a bolt-action rifle against an enemy firing machine gun. So the machine gun laying down an incredible stream of bullets at any given point. York having to cock, reload every single round, you know, fire, chamber round, fire, chamber round. You can move it fast, but it's not anywhere comparable to a machine gun. But the machine gun is sitting up on a hill and it needs to fire down into York and his men, which is an ideal position for the machine gunners. But the problem is, in order for the machine gunners to see where to fire, they have to poke their heads over a parapet and look out over. When they poke their heads up to see where to fire the machine gun, York is waiting, and he shoots them. And then the next does it, and he shoots again. York continues this, nearly running out of ammunition for his rifle. Every time an enemy pops his head up, to see where to continue to fire the machine gun, he shot and killed. Eventually, as he's running low on ammunition, a group of six German soldiers stand up with their bayonets and charge forward at Corporal York. Either completely out of ammunition or, or very close to it, he pulls his sidearm revolver or a pistol in 1911 and shoots all six dead before they get to his position. Something to keep in note. Remember, 
he was a conscientious objector or submitted a packet to be a conscientious objector and struggled with the thought of killing other people. I don't think that ever changed. It doesn't sound like it did. It sounds like he recognized there might be times where it has to be done. So as he's fighting these German attackers and trying to knock out the machine guns that are trying to kill his men, he's calling the whole time for them to surrender. After the war, he said, I didn't want to keep killing. I wanted them to surrender. I wanted to stop. Well, eventually, Corporal York has wreaked so much havoc on this German unit that the commander of that unit surrenders. Now, the headquarters unit that they had already captured is yelling back as well, saying, hey, guys, surrender. Come on, stop. But between that and York, this unit surrenders. Now, we talked about how they're tired. They don't know when the end is in sight. The Americans have a little different approach. We're gung-ho at this point in the war. It's, it's going to cost a lot of American lives. But there's people on the American side saying, I want to get into action before, before the war ends. On the other hand, you have these Germans in the trenches that may have been fighting for four years and just expect that they're going to die. They might now have an opportunity to surrender. And a large group does so, expecting that at the bottom of that hill is a substantial enemy force. When nearly 90 German soldiers walk out of those positions down the hill to surrender, they find Corporal York leading a group of eight American soldiers. York gathers up all the men and the prisoners, marches them back to American lines, presents what is now 132 German prisoners of war, captured by eight able-bodied Americans. Now, that number was 17, and there were a few that were wounded that would have been able to help in the assault. A handful were killed and, uh, and, and were not able to, to help bring those uh, prisoners back. But when he makes it back, he's promoted to sergeant. He's awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, eventually upgraded to the Medal of Honor, and he survives the war. Now, when he comes home, there is, it starts a little bit during his life and continues after, there's a little bit of controversy about his Medal of Honor. The controversy is essentially boils down to he didn't do everything by himself. It wasn't like he was out there all alone and overran all these positions. One of the common refrains that you'll hear is that Sergeant York, remember he got promoted after the action, took 35 enemy machine gun nests out. But the, the, the facts look a lot more like he opened a gap that allowed the Americans to push through and this, the, the following American military advance silenced 35 machine guns. That's different. I mean, he, he opened the door, which is an incredible act, but we can't get those two things confused. The other one is, it's interesting. It's that he didn't do it all himself. There were other soldiers there that were taking part as well. And that is spot on. But I think there's a reason that the story was told the way it was told. America's looking for heroes. We always have. Especially in times of war, we want heroes. York came back to a parade. We want somebody we can look to and say that right there, that. That is what we need to strive for. And it's a lot easier to say Sergeant York did this thing than Sergeant York led a group of men who did this thing. Now, What's interesting is I don't think that second is any less noble. He was still the one who took the attack from the enemy. He's still the one who was leading that group that found itself behind enemy lines and, and getting hammered by enemy machine guns. I, his action, even if you say he led this event that captured 132, 
I think is still up there for a Medal of Honor. I don't think it, I don't think it degrades at all what he did. Nonetheless, at the time, we're looking for a hero. It's a lot easier to say one person did it. So there was some pushback on that as well. One thing that's interesting from then Sergeant York, now that he's home, is he didn't really profit from all of the attention he got. He tended to use his name and the story and his legacy for nonprofits and for charitable organizations. Um, There was a movie made and he was on the receiving end of royalties, but it ended up being a big mess. And he, he really didn't live the life that you would think for somebody uh, coming back from the war with that stature. Um, now, one thing that's interesting with Sergeant York, who he would live to the age of 76, he passed away in 1964. One thing that is interesting, I think, is Ever the Patriot, how he, uh, how he, named, his, how he named his children. So he ended up having a lot of children, I want to say eight kids. And some of the names of his children are Woodrow Wilson, Sam Houston, Andrew Jackson, Betsy Ross, Mary Alice, and Thomas Jefferson. How about that? So Sergeant York, service in World War I, earns the Medal of Honor, comes back, does try to uh, join in World War II, but he's a little too old and a lot of shape um, is turned down, but continues to serve his community the rest of his life. So it's an incredible story. The first we covered from World War I, Sergeant Alvin York awarded the Medal of Honor for capturing 132 German prisoners during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive of World War I. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.